trying to make it right These people won't let me go I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow I'm just trying to make it right These people won't let me go Let me grow, let me go Let me grow, let me go They should know, they should know They should know, they should know I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio and intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I'm joined by my guest, Mike Hershenfeld. Mike Hershenfeld, who uses he, him pronouns, has spent the last 12 years as a passionate educator focused on progress through systematic change. He began his career as a substitute teacher, went on to earn a master's in teaching, and then served as a high school social studies teacher. Mike became a central office administrator, managing a district-wide system of school autonomy, strategic school planning, and a pre-K expansion initiative focused on meeting the needs of the district's lowest income families. Mike was recruited to work at the Texas Education Agency to support some of the most innovative districts across the state of Texas, and then went on to found an organization focused on systematic change management support for states, districts, and schools across the country. In Austin AISD, Mike has served on the district's Boundary Advisory Committee and Budget and Finance Advisory Committee. When he's not working to dismantle antiquated and ineffective education systems, Mike likes to explore all corners of Austin with his dog, Judge. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Hi, Brianna. How you doing? I am so well. Thank you for joining. Please call me Bri. Brianna means I'm in trouble Brie. or owe someone money. So please, please. <laughs> totally fine. Um, Hi, Bri. Hi. I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, I like to tell people how we've met. We've never like met in person because quarantine still happening but yeah you know Ashley who I went to college with and I knew her she was Ashley Mazzeau yeah and so she when you first started running she like sent me all your information I was like got it I will vote for him what else do I need to know (laughs) and went from there um and then you did an episode with Kelsey on engaging Austin and Kelsey's been a guest on my show before she's a really good friend of mine um, and then it also turns out that, you know, Douglas, who I call Didi, who dates yeah. <laughs> my friend Marilyn. So I was like, okay, I have to chat with him. So today we are recording, it is October 27th, but last night, October 26th, we had like this Instagram live, which I'll link in the show notes that we got to have a conversation about, you know, are you running for office and things people need to know about the school board. So yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you and give the listeners a chance to get to know you more. And then we can deep dive into your topics. It's not one that I have gotten to cover yet. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, our, our connections are, are interesting given that they're, they're really rooted in Connecticut. Um, but we have kind of linked up here in Austin. Um, and I don't know why Ashley didn't connect me with you. She just told you about me. Um, so I'll, I'll let her know that, uh, we, we should have been connected a couple of years ago. Um, 
but yeah, no, this is, this is awesome. I'm really excited to talk to you and uh, kind of explore these topics, not just with the education system here in Austin, but um, what I see are just systemic issues nationally. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we can get more people just interested in the education system and kind of go from there. Yeah. So my first question before we get started, how long have you lived in Austin? Uh, a little over four years. Oh. So- and, and Austin or Texas is my fifth state that I've lived in. Interesting. So I moved here in May of 2016. So we moved here like semi-closely. So also- Yeah, I was September of 2016. So yeah, yeah we could have we could have been hanging out for four years and I'm going to send Ashley a text <laughs> after this conversation. Please do and, and let her know that I said that she's, she's just, she's been slacking out here. Yep. Um, and I just saw them actually. Uh, I saw Ashley a, a few weeks ago um, in Joshua Tree, California. Cute. So jealous. Yeah. I haven't seen her in so long. Um, but yes, I'm excited to talk to you today. The topic that you wanted to talk about was public, the, a public education system, um, local, state, and national. And my friend, Andrew, who his episode's coming out soon, he talked about, we talked about on that conversation of the pris- school to prison pipeline. Um, so I'm yeah. interested in, in hearing your take on like public education in the system and I always tell people like with me, I grew up in Hamden, Connecticut, kind of like this middle class, like two parent household. My parents owned their house. You know, the Hamden school district was a good district. Like we got to, we learned ice skating during gym and we started taking languages in like sixth grade and we took field trips and growing up in New England, you can take a bus and be somewhere like within an hour. So had a lot of like privileges in that, but that was in Hamden and thinking of like one school district over in New Haven where the school district is just completely different. Um, So I've always like known my privileges of being educated in that system. Um, So yeah, I'm just always interested in talking about how, how education itself is such a privilege. And so, yeah, I would love love for you to get us started. (laughs) I mean, since you, since you use the Connecticut like geographical analogy here where Hamden is kind of uh, to the, to the more affluent, privileged section over New Haven, you can even go to the other side of Hamden and look at North Haven, which is where I did my student teaching. And that is like super affluent Mm -hmm. and not very diverse. Um, I believe they actually exchange students with New Haven as a part of a cross district busing program. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like, yeah, these three districts in line, like really show you the spectrum of what it looks like when school districts are segregated, when, um, when resources are not distributed equitably, like it's a really interesting, like three districts to use, especially in Connecticut. I know most of your listeners might not like understand that geography, but uh, if you include this in the post edit, like, yeah, it's, it would be really interesting for people to just take a look at New Haven to Hamden to North Haven, Connecticut um, is a really good example of what it looks like across districts. Well, I just recently was looking up what the breakdown demographically was the year I graduated in 2008 in Hamden and something crazy, like there were 60,000 people living in Hamden when I graduated, which I didn't know. And just looking at that demographic breakdown of like 40% white, 40% black, and then like 20 split between Hispanic, Asian, and um, like indigenous folks, all that sort of stuff. But just thinking like just how racially like diverse still that was of being able to grow up with teachers who looked like me. And, you know, I remember kids being bussed in from New Haven when I started like middle school, like we were taking the same sort of thing North Haven did of diversifying um, the students that came in just because we knew our education system was 
and not to say leaps and bounds better, but essentially leaps and bounds better than, than what the New Haven district was offering them. Yeah. Yeah. Hamden um, is probably closer to an Austin style of demographics um, than either of those other districts. Like Hamden is what I would describe as a a economically and racially diverse school district. Um, Whereas New Haven and North Haven are both like not diverse and in, in any respect, like New Haven is much lower income. Um, the demographic population is, I would, without knowing, like probably closer to like 80% um, African-American, Hispanic, um, whereas North Haven is probably closer to like 90% white. Um, and Hamden is right in the middle. And, you know, it's, it's, those are the types of districts that truly can do really innovative, incredible things in education systems, similar to Austin, which is, you know, something that we can talk about and, and something I'm really interested in. Yeah, let, let's jump on in. So I know, it's um, hard. <laughs> <laughs> so with you running for school board, and like I said, with Ashley having sent me your info and, you know, me being, I always tell people like, I've been into politics since I was 10 when Gore and Bush were like going at it. Like that's when I first got into politics and started really paying attention. And to make a long story short, I was in class and my teacher was like, well, if the election was happening today and you could vote, who would you vote for? And me growing up in this very diverse place, knowing all my classmates, I was like, oh, obviously we're all going to vote for Gore, like growing up in this very progressive city. And to my shock to see some of my classmates raise their their hands for a bush, like that was like a wake up call for me. And so, you know, being raised by people who were active during the civil rights movement and, you know, all that sort of stuff in my whole life being told like as a black woman that my voice matters and who I was matters and being able to have the privileges I was allotted from, like I said, growing up in a two-parent household, English being my first language, growing up in an educational system that was very beneficial for me. Um, I've always been into politics. And so I have to admit that I have never paid attention to school board, which um, you and I did that live last night and my aunt who's yeah. a principal at Beecher in New Haven, she got mad at me. She was, why didn't you tell me you were doing this last night? But yeah. I always think of that because I thought about being a teacher for a while. And so like her and I have had these conversations about the education system and why the school board is so important. And so I think to get started, like I would love to, you talk about it all the time, but I would love to give people a chance, like, again, learn what school board does, um, why, why you're running for school board, and how the school board itself pays into the edu- plays into the education system. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I'm assuming that since we've started, you know, conversating, and I, I think we'll, we'll probably stay connected and keep talking and um, probably be friends after this, uh, which I'm excited Absolutely. about. I think even regardless <laughs> of that, like, now that you've, like, we've had that conversation last night, um, I think you probably won't not pay attention to at least like larger things going on in the school right. district, which is good. Um, yeah. What's unfortunate is like, it takes a lot of these one-on-one conversations with people that don't have students or like children in the district um, to get people on board. And, you know, one of the things we talked about last night is if you care at all about politics, if you care at all about how tax money is spent, like if you've ever complained about any government institution or wanted any type of change, but you've left the school district out of that conversation, you're actually leaving out what is often the largest public expenditure at both the state and local level across the country. And so, you know, if if you're a person who has been um, talking about, you know, defunding or reallocating money from local police departments, um, 
like you should also understand, like I'm not saying defund education. We've been doing that for too long. We need to put more money into education. True. But what I'm saying is that the school district is the largest expenditure in any city. Um, I think in Austin, even though it's not part of the city, if you look at property taxes, I believe it accounts for over 25% of property taxes go to the school district. And the rest is just split up between all of the city services. Um, and so in Austin ISD, our, our annual budget is about $1.6 billion. Um, and so if you talk about wanting, like if, if you're a person and I'm one of these people, if you believe that government budgets are moral documents that should follow the ideals of society, um, the way that money is spent, you know, you should start with the school district. Um, if you're a person like I am who has been yelling for change in the public safety police system, um, and you think that that doesn't start, that those problems don't start in the education system, you're leaving out the foundation of, of our problems. Um, you know, I, I said to you yesterday, one of my favorite things on the campaign trail to, to say has been, if you wait until you have kids to care about our schools, it will probably be too late for them. Um, but in addition to that, like what I'm thinking is like, if you want change in the criminal justice system and you think that doesn't mean that you should start with the education system, then you're also probably not approaching it from like the fully pragmatic perspective. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't still be out like, yes, we need people at all aspects of the system. But, and we talked about this also yesterday, I think one of the bigger problems, and it's not a problem, like if we were to attach hashtags to like all of the people that have been traumatized and brutalized by the American public education system, like we would crash Twitter. Um, and I think the reason why we've been able to leverage social media in a lot of the public safety conversations is because unfortunately, there have literally been lives lost that we've been able to elevate um, in a way to build community around a hashtag of George Floyd or Eric Garner and like, everybody up, Breonna Taylor, like these are, these are names that drive change. There's no real logistically appropriate way to do that in education. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I would probably bet that, again, unfortunately, we could probably attach more hashtags to people damaged by the education system than damaged by the criminal justice system. That's so heavy. Um, <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm, I do that a lot. <laughs> no, and it's it's important. I mean, if we, I think like that's what it, the conversation Andrew and I had about um, the school to prison pipeline of like just like the perpetuation of how much school itself models the justice system of like schedules when you can go to the bathroom when you can you know all these different things and so thinking about even just the system of, of education and how much that models how these kind of mirror each other is yeah. something I never thought about that way of like even just the systems itself mimic each other and you know like you're saying if you want to have sort of any any change that happens you have to start fighting it now in order for it to to take hold in the future because like I said last yeah. night I I don't have kids now don't know if I'll have kids but like um, with, like I said, with, with my aunt being in education and having a godson who's now 10 or 11, um, yeah. but paying attention to that too, like 
him growing up in New Haven, but he goes to a magnet school in Hamden and how just that different switch of like how many more resources he got by going to a magnet school in Hamden and, and just seeing like, especially him as a black boy in a state that is progressive and just, you know, in those two cities and how differently he was treated just by the school that he was going yeah. to. Same kid, just different education yep. system and just the benefits of, of, you know, that, that change of, of educational venue. Yeah. I mean, what you just described, like the biggest difference outside of just money from one district to another um, is adult expectations of children. Uh, and, you know, th there's a lot of people who, and I'm one of them, if it's not done the right way, who really push hard against like calling a school a good school or a bad school. Um, because normally those designations are the result of how students perform on a test um, is how we decide if a school is good or bad. I'm okay with calling a school good or bad, but I don't care how the students perform. What I care is about how the adults in the building perform. Um, a school can be bad if adults do not have the best interests of children in mind. Um, and to think that out of you know two plus million educators in this country, like there are some that don't have the best interests of, of children in mind. Um, and so when I go into buildings and I've, I've been in dozens of schools, uh, in dozens of districts in multiple states across the country, I do classroom observations and like I've gotten to see a lot of different teaching styles. And like, I know what I look for. I, I know what other people look for. Um, but for me, what like the biggest positive or negative in a building is if you can feel the culture and it's the adult culture not the student or family culture. It's, are the adults in the building maintaining high expectations of all students, regardless of ability, race, income, um, the types of clothes that they wear, their gender, um, their gender identity, like all of these things play a huge impact. Like, I don't know why we think that only police officers can have implicit bias. Um, like it's the, and I'm making those connections throughout this conversation because I think for the most part, like, a lot of progressives have spent some time over the past several months, like really exploring the issues in our public safety system, criminal justice, police, all of that. Um, and it makes more sense to them than the issues that I'm going to talk about in education. So anytime where I can, I'll make those connections. Yeah, I think that's super important, especially like, like you're saying implicit bias. I literally just did one of like so my job, half of my job is doing like implicit bias and like racial justice trainings. And so I did one for a nonprofit and talking about that of like, in these systems, you know, coming from a nonprofit background, I swear it'll tie in. Um, coming from nonprofit background, being a black yeah. woman working at orgs that typically serve either women or people of color, but all the executive suites level people are typically white. And talking with folks about that of like, why why is it that people who are perpetuating this sort of like system are the ones who are trying to change it versus having this conversation amongst themselves of like, why is it as white people, do we have this sort of savior complex and hire people of color to do the work to with other people of color? And just like <clears throat> those conversations often of like the higher up you tend to go, the more white it is. And I think about that in education mm -hmm. too, like but the fact that my aunt is a black female principal at a school in New Haven, it was always just like the most, fantastical thing to me because it's just like it's such a rarity to hear that a woman of color is in this position of power especially in education yeah. and the fact like 
she knows all the parents of all her students. Like she sits in on parent teacher conferences. She goes to everything, not only as a mother, but having been through the system of education herself and knowing how racially skewed and biased it can be. And she talks about that often of why she is so um, ingrained and invested in the students in her school and, and not, not, wanting, not wanting that cycle to continue in her school and in the education that her, her and her teachers provide, so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, what you, what you bring up here, um, like around this idea of who makes it to the administration side of education, who, who is at the top. Um, yeah. It, education as a whole is, uh, largely, okay. So let's just talk about elementary education, um, which is like pre-K through fifth or sixth grade, depending on the state or district. Um, I believe 80% of Teachers, I don't know the racial breakdown, um, but when you look at elementary school principals, um, it is like 60% men. So 80%, so like it it doesn't match up. And it it got to the point where um, my undergraduate major in college was sociology and, and I was already in the masters of teaching program before, like it was this five-year dual program. And so I did my undergrad thesis on what factors affect the ability um, or, or like, I forget the title, but it was about uh, gender's role in how people advance through like the public education hierarchy. Um, And I focused it just on like a binary gender conversation, men and women. Um, and, uh, you know, I think today I would have to write that paper much differently. Um, and that was only what, like 13 years ago. Uh, and it was still like a 50 page paper, but what, what I determined, what was most clear, um, is that there is a, uh, phenomenon, a social phenomenon in, in hiring practices or in HR practices that, is the same across all industries, but it is certainly true in education. Um, it's known as homosocial reproduction, where a person that is in a position of hiring authority will almost always, and not intentionally, um, but will almost always hire the person that most closely reflects themselves. And so if we start with a system that didn't just prioritize white men, but like that was designed for white men, um, then what we're doing is as soon as you take away these, like these barriers, like, okay, like 1919 women can vote. Like, and we start taking these barriers down we say, okay, great. Like now it's equal. Like, no, it's not equal because there are still social and psychological phenomena that are in place that will continue to perpetuate those historical issues. And so if we want like one place where I will kind of push back a little bit on what you said. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm trying to reflect, is this because it's, it's talking about me? I, I don't know, but I'm reflecting on it a little bit. Okay. Um, but si- since the people that are in these hiring positions are, or at least historically have been like white men who like got coaching jobs and coaching job on your resume, what in my research showed that that makes a huge bump up in moving to administration. Most sports are male sports. So like when you start looking at all of the background things that enable people to move up, um, it is highly geared towards men. And 
the problem is we need to start with like putting some type of blocks into that homosocial reproduction idea, um, which means that we do need white men that are in these positions of power to hire people that are not white men to start to break this thing. Because no matter what, like if you have a woman of color in that job, based on this sociological research, she is more likely to hire a woman of color unintentionally than somebody else. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like that it's, it's just built into us. Um, what we need to do is we need to ensure that the systems that are in place don't allow for these unintentional psychology, sociology things to um, continue to perpetuate segregation and racism. I laugh because I was a sociology major. And so it's always like you're speaking my language. Um, But that's one of the things with implicit bias I was talking about too, of how we like, for example, with implicit bias, one example I use is like when we hear of a job opportunity and we'll think of like the friend we deem as most professional air quotes versus just like posting it generally and letting our friends decide for them. But even that, like that implicit bias of, me as a black woman, I'm going to go look for, to bring in more people who look like me and diversify a space while also making sure that they like quote fit the the role we're trying to, to make. So yeah, I, I always think about that because I feel like sometimes I ask myself and a lot of the roles that I'm in back when I was working in nonprofit work of representing uh, companies because I was their fundraiser. So I'd be the one like doing all speaking engagements and everything. And it's also that like teetering line of are you bringing me in not only because of my qualification, but the fact that I help you look more diverse in your hiring process. So that's a different tangent for a different day, but think about like that in education of whenever we think about teachers, I think we think of teachers as like, you're saying, like I always automatically always think of a principal being a white man Mm -hmm. in, in growing up with an aunt who was a principal. Right. And even still like my implicit bias would be, well, only white men are principals and that whole like perpetuation of, of that fact too. So like you're saying, it's a whole system we have to dismantle or like take apart and, and relearn and, and, mm-hmm. and rebuild because, yeah. of, because of that sort of implicit bias we have in our head already. Yeah. And it does like, I, uh, I'm a proponent of affirmative action type of like initiatives and, and things like that. Um, but I would say like the, the approach here is not to hire unqual- like an unqualified woman of color for the sake of that, like especially in education. Um, the, like, the place where we need to affect these changes is way before, is like, who are we grooming to like first become teachers? Mm-hmm. We don't have enough teachers, of co- especially male teachers of color. Absolutely. Like talking about people wanting to see people that look like themselves in their teacher force, like, um, it's a critically uh, important thing for us to be talking about. Um, but we need to be pushing people into education, which means we need to look at like how we do compensation and how like people get promoted in teaching. Um, we prioritize good teachers, regardless of race um, or gender, to leave the classroom to make more money in central office, having less of an impact, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of things that need to change to incentivize all people to want to enter the field of education, but most explicitly, like people of color, um, black males, like these are things that have been historically lacking from the demographics of the teacher force 
Um, and even when you look at it, like black males also move up very quickly uh, out of the, like a couple of years in the classroom, uh, their coaching, their central office administrator, boom. And like, nobody knows who the central office administrators are. So if we're talking about like young black boys getting an opportunity to be taught, like for mo- not just like one, oh, second grade, I had a black teacher. Like, no, like it, these are things that like truly reflect um, the values of society. And we haven't created a system that incentivizes people to do this work. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I mean, we could talk for hours about all of these things. <laughs> wait, 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 um, before you move forward, I just want to yes. clarify for folks who don't know, what is affirmative action? Uh, so, like, purposefully hiring um, people into roles that have been historically denied those opportunities. Um, so we hear a lot about in colleges, college admission, admissions processes. And that's one place where I'm fully, fully on board. Like, there should be... I mean, you can look at heart like Harvard has done these things over the years, but um, it there are some companies that do it, uh, public institutions. Um, but we we have to like in all of these types of efforts, in everything that we do in a change effort, um, specifically like with me, I'm talking about schools. When you want to make a change, and affirmative action is a type of systemic change, um, you have to consider the sustainability of doing that and the effectiveness of doing it. Um, and so, you know, in education or in healthcare, like if we're starting at the later end, like where we're saying, okay, we're going to use affirmative action to put potentially less qualified people into critically important roles. Um, we're looking at the wrong end. Like, and so it might not be an over, like people want overnight fixes for things. Um, and if, a, if, if a change doesn't show promise after like a year, people are like, oh, this was a terrible idea. Um, and that's why change is so difficult. And this is like my business is change management. And I can tell you right now, good, effective, sustainable change never happens in a year. Like, especially in our school districts, like yeah. you need five years of like robust planning and implementation and like constant flexion for change to be done well. Um, and so I, I push anybody that's in a position of like power or authority right now who truly does want to make change, like think about what you can do at that end of like the far end of the spectrum, but go back to the beginning and figure out what are you changing from the foundation to be creating opportunities for people that have been historically marginalized rather than like creating space for them later on because you've realized you've screwed up. Yeah. And I think you briefly touched on this when you said like um, having like white male principles and them knowing their power of their positions of power and and them moving forward. And I think that's what like, not to like sound creepy, but like really like struck my, like my new obsession with you is like as a (laughs) white man who was a teacher and now is running for school board, it's like, you see that there's something you need to do. And you've been, I think, watching your campaign the last few weeks of like, knowing that like there's some things that you're not going to be the best on but like you're willing to learn and grow into but you knowing what the system is and how you can help make change happen because you have you're in this position to do so and so I think that's also really important of you know using your space and privileges to help make change happen and and I talk about that often like with me like I as a black woman am a very marginalized person but also really taking 
the time to notice what privileges I do have and what I can do to make stuff better for others. So yeah, yeah, I think that's what, what really like has drawn me into having more conversation with you, especially in education where as a white man, you are, I feel like white men are given so much space in education at all times. And I was recently doing some research of like, just like, oh, it's for implicit bias stuff. Cause I just geek out on this of like, it's been proven that professors in higher education will make more time for their white male students than any other student mm. they deal with. So like if, even if like, yeah. so if you and I were having the same problem, a professor is more likely to spend more time with you and be more patient with you working through this problem based solely on the fact that you are a white man and yep. how important that is, especially looking at education, especially when we talk about higher education and people paying to go to college as well of like, we're not, we're not going to have the same experience based solely on how we are seen and identified. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, that goes back into like this idea of expectations that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, and like, the what I see is like a huge problem in education. And I, I don't, I'm this sucks because this is a, a sociological approach to this. And I don't know if this is the right word, but like the, the adultification of young black children. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And like, I don't know, like I, I grew up in Yonkers, New York. Like I've, I've lived in areas that were not diverse, but like I'm used to people speaking 10 different languages languages around me a day. Like I'm used to every, like if anything, I, I, oh, I, I've spent more time feeling the odd person out in rooms than like other people, which is a great thing. Like, I, I you know, I think we'd be a better world if more people had those types of opportunities. Um, but yeah, I think like when we're talking about these expectations, like I've, I've never, as a teacher, as an administrator, like been able to understand like why are these adults like treating these young black kids like they should be more adult Mm -hmm. and like you're holding them to an adult standard. And these are where like the expectations start flipping around. Um, It's why like this is a huge part of the school to prison pipeline problem Mm -hmm. Um, where like I see YouTube videos of like little six-year-old girls throwing a temper tantrum and getting handcuffed. Like, what is this shit? Like, like put me on the school board and see if that, like, if, or when that happens in AISD, like how much shit hits the fan. Cause like, I am not running to be a micromanager. It's one of the huge problems of school districts across the country. Right. Um, but that is one place where like, I would, I would be loud. Um, and it'll be a problem because I was not a good kid. Um, or maybe there's a, a less bad way for me to say that. I acted out a lot as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I got like, and I wonder if I even challenged myself to start doing this, but like I would get at least one suspension every year. Um, I would curse out my teachers. Like I would talk back. I don't know the reasoning for it. I mean, looking back at like, maybe I wasn't challenged enough. I don't know. I didn't do anything in high school. I graduated high school with like uh, less than a 2.7 GPA. Um, But I went on to graduate my undergrad in college, like cum laude. I got a 3.9 with my master's degree. I own my own company. So like, if you look back, like there were plenty of teachers who thought like, oh, you know, maybe he'll be like the manager of an Applebee's or something one day. Um, But, and it's why I'm, I love being in education because what you do in school does not, like people can label you, people can decide who you are, but it has nothing to do with what you'll become. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why like, it's one of the reasons I'm running uh, you know, we, we talked before about 
um, I forget where this connection came in. Uh, but what I wanted to say earlier was, cause you, you, you talked about like, like this, this, like the white savior mentality or idea, which I, I hate like missionaries, like people who go places to like put their ideals on people. It's crazy. And I feel like I have some trolls who like think that, that they're like, well, you, you can't be a voice for us. Like I hear that. I'm like, well, this is the problem. Like, I don't want to be your voice. I want to change the system. So you finally have one for yourself. Um, whereas the other candidates who are running and I'm going to try not to campaign as much as possible. Um, but the other candidates who are running, like they're running on this idea, like I can be your voice. Like I've gone through what you've gone through. I'm like, I've gone through some things you've gone through. Have I, you know, am I black? No. Like, have I experienced trauma, intergenerational trauma? Like I'm a Jew, like I've experienced intergenerational trauma. White supremacists hate me almost as much as they hate you. Like it's real. Um, my privilege is that I can hide that fact and you can, I'm very aware of that. Um, but like, this is part of the problem. Like people think, and I view because of my professional experience, I view the school board as a very, very different political role than running for city council or mm. Senate or something like that. I see this as a job, like the similar way to we elect judges in the state. Um, are you going to elect a judge who has never practiced law, who has no idea about the legal system? No, I don't even know if you can legally get on the ballot if you're not a member of the bar. Um, and I feel very strong that like, and I don't want to limit access to this role. And like, this is where I do have a lot of back and forth because I understand like access is critically important, especially to our public structures. Um, but I just, I've seen so many school boards made up of so many well-intentioned people screw it up over and over and over and over again. Um, and it's gotten to the point where like, should there be like actual qualifications? Like Austin ISD, like I mentioned earlier, it's a $1.6 billion a year school district. The school board is required to set that budget and pass that budget. Um, you know, one of my opponents is, he's great. There's nobody that is running for this election that I don't think is an incredibly well-intentioned, good human being. Um, but one of the people that is running, he's I think 24 years old or 25 um, he's just finishing his undergrad. He's a substitute teacher. And like, is he going to go places? Yes. Um, do I think that he's qualified or ready to govern a $1.6 billion a year school district? Honestly, no, I don't. Um, I mean, there are some days where I don't think I am. And like, I've been doing this for 12 years and I've managed multi-million dollar budgets. Um, and this is like one of the key issues that I think we have in our public education system that uh, in this country, we elect 13,000 local school boards. Um, and when you think about that, like people controlling the progress or lack thereof of the foundation of our public systems in this country. Like if we're saying that school to prison pipeline is real, if we're saying that um, opportunities that come from your life opportunities that come from your school opportunities are real, then we're saying that these 13,000 locally elected school boards, mostly made up of people with no experience doing anything in education, like to me, that's scary. Like it's, it's, it's the point where like democracy, like that kind of democracy is scary. Um, and I, I'm not opposed to it. Uh, I'm, I'm, and it feels weird saying it like as a like pretty far left progressive. I'm like, 
this is one of the places where because of the like the professional work that I've done, I've seen how bad it can be. Um, so like at 13,000 local school boards, let's say the average is seven members on each board. That's about 90,000 people. I mean, I don't know 90,000 people like who could remotely do that job well. Um, like I'm, I'm just thinking like far and wide, like even if they were all former teachers, like, I don't know, it's, it's crazy. Um, and I think that's one of the large problems with our education system is that there are 13,000 different locally elected bodies all deciding different things for the future of this country. Sorry. <laughs> You're just making me more and more excited slash nervous and I don't know which one <laughs> to unpack. Well, I mean, like it's not, it's not something that can or necessarily should be changed. Democracy is like the foundation of our republic. Right. Um, I think we need to have different expectations of board members, of what school districts do. Um, and I say that knowing that there are people who elect school board members because of like what I see as really bad ideals, um, you know? And so like, it's why we have uh, antiquated ideas still moving throughout society. And again, I don't know from a change management perspective, like I always look, I love it when there are two far sides of any equation or of any like spectrum, because my skill is looking at both and working towards that pragmatic center, but still tilted way towards the, the progress side, um, especially around ideas like equity. I think this is a place where even though I, I am a white presenting man who has had all of the privileges that I could have asked for, um, uh, you know, and all of the traumatic events that I think have actually helped me get to where I am um, and have had the support to leverage those. That, yeah, when we have these 13,000 locally elected school boards and we prioritize that, we have to understand that that means that there are parts of this country and school districts that will continue to move forward in a very conservative way. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mean conservative politically, because I think, you know, we need to get to a place where racism is not a political conversation. And sexism Ooh. is not a political conversation. What a day. Um, yeah. Like the politics, like if we were talking about politics, the political conversation of liberal versus conservative should be the tax rate. Like these are conversations that we should be having in a political atmosphere. Mm -hmm. The conversations we shouldn't be having in a political atmosphere are, should we teach third Sex graders? Ed. Yeah, this is exactly where I was going. Should we teach third graders? Um, the idea of consent, which is where our sex ed curriculum starts. Mm -hmm. But people that are politically motivated would have you believe that we're teaching third graders like literal sex, right? Um, like literal like sex. And <laughs> it's not like the start of the public or the start of our sex ed curriculum is about consent. And I'll be honest, why is consent starting in third grade? Like mm -hmm. consent can start from the second a baby is presented with an opportunity to share, yeah. like sharing and hitting and 
scratching and punching. Like mm-hmm. these are ideas of consent. It doesn't need to start from a sexual place. Right. I think actually, if you start it from a sexual place, you're stigmatizing consent almost. Yeah. Um, like consent is about like checking with like, hey, can I give you a hug? Like exact that's exactly what I was thinking. My friend, when she had her kids, she was like, if my kid doesn't want to give you a hug, I'm not going to force them to give you a hug. And because I'm teaching my child consent. So yeah, I 100% yeah. agree with that. Um, and so I've had a lot of conversations with folks who, uh, cause I, I stay having conversations with people who have left AISD for mm-hmm. either homeschooling a charter school, private school, uh, religious, whatever. Um, because AISD has a hugely, di- like a, a significant downward trend in enrollment. I mean, it's only going to keep going down and declining enrollment means less money, less funding. Uh, it means you have to start closing schools. It means you have to start like having really difficult conversations. And so people always want to figure out how can we, because the city is not decreasing in students. AISD is. Mm-hmm. We are increasing in students. There are about 25,000 students who go to charter schools, another several thousand, uh, I think probably, uh, I don't want to mess up the number. There are, there are a <laughs> lot of people who do homeschooling, a lot of people who do private, and a lot of people who do religious. Um, my assumption is that there's probably like close to 50,000 students living in Austin that don't go to Austin Independent School District. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I stay talking to those parents about why they left. Um, and I'll be honest, a lot of parents have told me that they left because of the sex ed curriculum. Um, and the recent changed one or the one before that? No, last, the one that happened last year. Oh, interesting. That like they've either, they either left then or they're like in my text message campaign, they've said, oh, doesn't like, no, you don't, no, no need for me to respond. I'm like, um, we're taking our kid out of the district because of the sex ed curriculum. Like, okay, so I stay trying to have a conversation. I'm not trying to change their mind. Right. Like, that's not my goal. I'm not here to convince people of those ideas. I'm here to try to get a job governing a school district and making decisions for the collective best interests of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, the collective best interest of society and children um, is that they learn as early as possible ideas of consent is that they learn as early as possible from a developmental perspective, like ideas of gender not being a binary conversation. Um, Like, do I think third graders should learn about physical sex? No, but like, that's not what we're talking about. Right. Like it's people that just don't want their kid to know that. There's more than two genders. That transgender, like Mm -hmm. that, like, even that a guy can like a guy mm-hmm. or like a guy could like, and I, I know I'm even talking about this the wrong way. Cause like, it, it's not something I, like, all I know is like, there's more than just gender male and gender female. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a lot like that's life. Yeah. And so like, why are we setting kids on both? Like for me, I'm actually more concerned with what the kid who's not learning about that is going to grow up to like be in society. Yep. And I think thankfully, like with social media and pe- like, you know, people will, will still learn. Like I, I had a parent tell me like, uh, cause I say, Hey, you know, you can opt out of that curriculum, which you can. And well, Oh, but other kids in the school are going to uh, be in that curriculum. And they talk like, I'm like, listen, if you think that even if you homeschool your kid, they're still not going to, 
Google like it. find a porn website. Like right. these things, like inf- stuff is out there. Like I, I have so many opinions and I think it's cause like I was an only child. And so like, I, and my parents are 25 when they had me. So like, we always had like very open, honest conversation and even still like being able to ask my mom questions, but still growing up and having like all these other girls who like would had their period before me and like having those conversations yeah. too. And just being like, I could go ask an adult or I'm going to talk to my friend. And we're going to Google on our, on our own. Like yeah, even, even with a good sex ed um, education and curriculum, we still wanted to know more. So that sort yeah. of like helicopter bubbling. I'm like, like you're saying, if you don't think your kid's going to go find it from themselves, they're sorry, you're out of your mind. Yeah. Like they're going to find it. Yeah. So let me, so now let me take this issue and I'm calling it an issue because for some people it is for me, it's not an issue. Yeah. The issue for me is that kids are leaving the school district. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. Um, I think the curriculum is fine. I think the opt out ability is fine. I think if you leave the district and think your kids still aren't going to learn about this stuff, you're incredibly ignorant um, for the, the, the intelligence of children. Like, and it's getting younger and younger. Like my two-year-old or my three-year-old nephew could FaceTime me, learn how to, like he knew how to click the FaceTime button before he could speak words. Yeah. Like you're not hiding this stuff from kids. No. So what I ask these parents, because um, one of the things that I'm running on is like this idea that individual schools in the community should be redesigned from a community-led perspective. And it should continue. It should be a continuous redesign. Like schools should never stop Um, adopting a mentality of continuous improvement and change. Like it should be the culture of a school to always be changing. Because as soon as that becomes the culture, it's less scary. Like, you know that, okay, like we're going to adapt. We're not making drastic changes that like mess kids up. Like we're, we're talking about changes that allow for new students to come in and, and older students to leave. And like, for that process to continuously shift because society changes quickly. Right. And so in that idea and with the idea, and I'm not recommending this, I'm just saying that it's something that could happen. And I don't know if I was a board member, how I would vote, but um, you could in this idea have like a couple of schools in the district that school wide don't have that curriculum, don't have the sex ed curriculum. And, you know, I would say to that parent, like, hey, you know, the only reason why I would even suggest that is because of the potential re-enrollment of students. Mm-hmm. Um, from the business perspective of our goal is to serve as many students as possible, well, and equitably. Um, and so I could ask a parent, like, hey, like, I'm not saying that this is going to be something that I actively push for. I could almost promise that that specific thing I would, I will not actively push for, but if it's something that comes down through whatever structures created for school redesign and a community, an entire community speaks and like, they're like our school, this is what we want. I'm like, okay. Uh, does that keep you in the district? Okay. Um, if students don't want, if their families want to go to a different school, like, because all of this is around like my biggest idea, which is you can enroll, you should be able to enroll in any school in the district you want. And there shouldn't be boundaries that even like tell you what you're like, you shouldn't have to transfer from a school to go to another school. Mm-hmm. Um, you should just be able to say, 
this is my first choice of school, this is my second choice of school, and this is my third choice. And in almost every scenario where this takes place across the country, everybody almost always gets their first or second choice. Um, and in that way, you can actually have very differently designed schools across the district. Mm. Um, but what I want this school board to do is very clearly state that, like, they, they clearly support the sex ed curriculum, as do I. But what they won't do and what they talk around because they care more about being politicians than about improving outcomes for kids and being transparent, um, what they really should do is, one, acknowledge that students are leaving the district because of that curriculum, and they need to take one of two options. They need to say, we're okay with them leaving because we are not changing this curriculum, which, in my opinion, like is probably what they would do. I don't think they'll ever say that. They're going to give some political BS answer around it. I would do it. Like if that was a vote, because um, like it's the truth or they need to say, OK, we'll figure out a way to give those parents what they're looking for, which means we would have entire schools in the district that did not have that curriculum, which means that we have schools in the district that um, think less of students who we consistently other anyway. Um, and who are saying like, oh, if you go to that school, we'll remove you and put you somewhere else. Like, I don't think that's the right approach. But my issue is that the school district, this board, isn't transparent and clear enough to say those things. They'll blame charters for stealing our kids before they'll blame themselves for making decisions and not being transparent about them. Um, and the biggest criticism I get from who I will call trolls that I have on Twitter and social media um, who are heavily aligned with the teachers union, um, they think I'm, I'm an advocate for charter schools or that I'm pro-charter, none of which I've ever said, and I'm not. Um, and you can like save this receipt. I'm not pro-charter, but I'm not anti-charter. Far, far, far from anti-charter. Um, what I am anti is uh, schools, any school, whether it's private, public, parochial, um, charter. I'm anti any school that does not equitably serve the individual needs of all students, that selectively enrolls students, meaning that they, they have like some type of test in requirement, um, which almost always means that that school will be very white and very wealthy. Um, and we can talk about the specific schools in Austin ISD that only enroll very white, very wealthy kids, while at the same time talking down about charters or other options and saying those same things against them. And I agree, let's talk crap about those charter schools after we talk crap about our own schools because we can actually change that. We can't change those charters, we can change our schools. Um, and so for me, that's like the biggest part of the conversation that's missing. And it's the one that the teachers union misses by a mile. Um, and it's another one of like my more radical things to say that like, I'm very critical of the teachers union. I'm also not anti-union. I'm very pro-union and very pro-worker. Um, but as long as the union maintains these types of policy approaches, um, they will become increasingly obsolete um, for the needs of students. Um, but I think a part of the understanding is that the union is not there for students. Um, they're there for teachers, which is fine. Just be transparent about it. Like every union exists for the workers, not for 
Like the auto union doesn't care about the driver of a car. Right. The same as the teachers union deep down doesn't actually prioritize students because that's not their job. Like stop pretending like that's your job. It's the job of individual teachers too. But the union's job is to ensure that due process exists, to ensure that nobody is being unfairly targeted. And these are important, critical things for like a pro-worker mentality. Um, but I will always be critical of union-led policy pushes that prioritize teachers over students in ways that are bad for students. Um, and I'll, I'll like, do you want me to tell you a couple? I don't want to like, I've, I've talked a lot. <laughs> it's like, do you want to spill the tea on a couple of teachers? I mean, of, no, of, not on of, teachers. of school, I've met of schools, of schools. Um, no, I know that there were a few questions you wanted to ask me. So I wanted to also leave that space because you said you yes. wanted to ask questions. Yeah. Tell me like, what, what is your experience um, as a student or like, have you done, have you experienced anything in the education system since you've graduated from uh, 12th grade? The only thing I can think of 12th grade, senior. The only thing I can senior. think about was during college. Year 12, as they say in Year Canada. Or, um, yeah. I actually did a bunch of speaking engagements for the professors at my alma mater for my undergrad this summer. And they were asking how they as a school could be better at being anti-racist. And I gave them an example of how I had this white female teacher who perpetuated misogyny onto her female students by making it very clear that she did not want to have office hours with any of the girls. She would get annoyed when any of the girls would ask a question. And so a lot of us kind of would like found this loophole of like either texting our guy friends during class or to come with us to office hours in order for her to even meet with us. And just like, thinking of like, this is a higher education um, system that I am paying for. And I have a teacher who clearly doesn't even want to be here with me. And so we were having the discussion during this like open conversation and someone kind of pushed back of being like, well, why didn't your white male student or your, your uh, classmates say anything? I'm like, you wanted them to fix something that wasn't their responsibility to fix her as a teacher should have realized it. I'm like, first of all, her as a teacher shouldn't have been perpetuating this, but then administration, when we, we should have as students had a way to like complain or make a statement about it. And so I, that, I always think about that one of, even as this educated person in this system, I was still kind of neglected and asked to essentially jump through hoops to even just get equal or, or acknowledged assistance for a thing that I was paying for. That's the only example I can think of right now. Yep. Um, how do you describe like your actual personal student career? Like, I mean, you actually, you talked about it before in terms of like, you know, uh, your experience in Hamden. Um, how much of like what you described before was you reflecting back and making new acknowledgements versus things that you knew while you were? I knew all of the stuff when I was there. Like, okay. I was so you're advanced. Yeah, I mean, I think my friend Kaya always says like I'm very like emotionally um aware of myself and so like I've been doing like a lot of this work my whole life. But like even during like again being an only child like my parents, you know, not to knock a parents, but like my parents were able to primarily focus on me as an only child and so you know, I was able to 
have a mom, like my mom specifically, like if something was going wrong, like my mom was like involved. Like I started like slipping in seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. And at the time I had a black teacher for social work or history. And she called my mom like, hey, Bray's like slipping. And so like my before I knew, like I had a conference with my mom, my teacher and myself. Um, but even then, like I was super involved in like, I did a bunch of stuff during school, like from yearbook to um, student government to volleyball to like all this stuff. Like I was very involved. I did theater. Like I was really ingrained in my education, not only like actual like day-to-day stuff, but like extracurriculars too. And like I said, Hamden uh, had a lot of, there was a lot of stuff I was able to do and be involved in. And we were able to like pick our electives in high school. So like Mm -hmm even then learning then like I had options and choices of different things I wanted to take and not take. And we were given like a two week window to change the elective if we didn't like, like if we didn't like it. So I think even just like, if we're talking about consent, like even that consent of being able to be like, I don't like this. I want to change this. Yeah. And I think about that a lot too. Like I was able to, as in a, in a school district that was really, that was very diverse where I had teachers who looked like me had women, had female teachers too, and had, you know, thinking back on it now, like had male teachers who re- like just basically gave a shit about their students who didn't look like them, right? Like just not perpetuating this sort of like, and not even like racist, but like this this bias around students of color and, and being very privileged in that way. Like I can't think of a bad experience I had except for first grade, which is really stupid thing about it now yeah yeah like and in first grade like it wasn't even that big deal but my teacher didn't say we couldn't start the multiplication test until they were all passed (laughs) out so I did mine by the time she was done so So you are an overachiever I was an overachiever and my friend Derek will tell the story constantly like she I don't remember her saying not to do it but apparently by the time she got back around to me I was done I don't know what to tell you lady so hey that's good thank you Um, yeah that that that's been my education story yeah, I think you, you've pulled more from that than a lot of other people do. Um, I think the the closer you're able to relate to your own student career, um, the better you'll be prepared to try and figure out how to positively affect the school system. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, don't wait until you have kids to care about the quality of our schools. Um, One, because you spend a lot, you spend most of your local tax money on them. Um, Two, like you're talking about creating like future generations of kids. And so if you live in society and you want to stay living in society, you should care about how we're creating new citizens. Um, And three, like if you have a job where you hire people or you own a business like I do, like you clearly should care about the quality of learning that's taking place in our schools. And not that everybody has the capacity to, you know, volunteer or do things, um, but who had the capacity to, you know, fight back against the injustices in our public safety system? Um, Very few of those people have anything to do with the criminal justice public safety system. So I, I call on people like, and that doesn't mean it needs to be, you know, protesting or marches and things like that. Like there are plenty of ways to be an advocate. Um, there are plenty of ways to join the process. Um, what I would caution everybody on is 
to not just like find one group and like because they say a couple of things or because somebody you know endorses them that you take everything they say as gold. And I include myself. Don't take everything I say as gold, but like listen, comprehend, and then go do some more research. Ask other people. Um, like take everything that I've been saying uh, in my criticisms of of the union of the teachers union, and go you know ask uh, the, pre- the the president's name of the Austin Teachers Union is Ken. Um, go ask him his ideas about this. Um, I'm sure he'll push back a lot, and that's fine. But like we as citizens need to make our own self-informed decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, that means not voting for people just because the Austin Chronicle endorses them. It means not voting for somebody just because your best friend tells you to. Um, although like I know some people are voting me for me just because their best friend told them to, and <laughs> that's fine. Um, but I've prioritized giving out like vote411.org more than my own website because like, I do believe that when somebody reads my responses compared to any of the other candidates and they see like, oh, like it's not just the buzzwords of like equity and transparency. Like he talks about ways that we can actually do it. Not that my ways are the best ways, but like it shows that there's a clear strategic thinking um, and experience doing the work. And so nine times out of 10 people after I get like uh, you go to vote411.org. Go look at the article uh, in Community Impact where we all answered questions. Make your own decisions. Let me know what you think. Like, let me know if you have any questions. And most of the time they come back and like, oh, Mike, like, that was awesome. Like, I see the strengths of the other folks, but like, yours are very clear. Like, you have my vote. Um, And so I I encourage everybody just like stay super well informed um, because especially around things around COVID and our schools, like I'm not going to pretend to be a scientist or a doctor. I'm not. But I'm also going to not pretend or like this sounds, uh, I'm not going to pretend like I'm not an expert on education yeah. and systems in education. I am. That is literally what I bring to the table. Um, and so when I see other people like online, like we've spent the past seven months with lots of people thinking they're doctors and scientists um, and thinking that like, and like, yeah. And these are people who barely graduated uh, or barely passed like high school biology are scientists now. Um, but it's the same in education. I see a lot of people in like parent groups and things online misinforming other folks, um, because they think they're education experts. Like I am much better at what I do now than as a teacher. Like I'll never, like I can observe a classroom and call out like what are good instructional strategies, classroom management strategies. I can't do them myself. Hmm. Like that's a skill that I didn't work on long enough to have, um, for the same reason that not everybody can go into a school district and like, like create massive change, but I have. Um, and so I think that's a, a perspective that's needed on the board. Um, can I give you one example of like where I've seen this? So last night was a board meeting, uh, an Austin ISD board meeting. And there was an item on the agenda uh, that like I read the agenda before and I'm like, oh, no, this is cool. Like nothing major. It's just going to be a vote through. Um, but I started getting tagged in comments about one specific item on the board, uh, on the agenda. And it was about changing district policy to align with the already approved superintendent's contract. Um, and the stipulation in the contract that was being talked about was that the superintendent um, in her contract was granted like 
final authority for hiring and firing decisions in the district. Um, they, people tagged me and the other candidates saying like, no, like the incoming board, like this shouldn't be allowed. And like, these are people who have no idea about what effective practices and education systems are. And from my perspective, I'm like, yes, I acknowledge I'm an incoming board member and I would like some power. I get it. But I actually disagree with the idea that a board should have any oversight besides accountability oversight um, of the superintendent's hiring and firing decisions. Um, and so the union pushed this out, like the Austin chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America posted it to their social media, like, hey, call into the board meeting and like, tell them to vote no on this. And they're asking me like, hey, like you must want them to vote no on this. And I'm like, no, like I want them to vote yes, because this is what good governance looks like. And I saw the other candidates um, from multiple seats respond to this Facebook demand from what I will describe as uninformed people, not that they're bad, like there's no bad intent. Um, these are parents who want the best for teachers and the best for the district, but they don't realize the unintended consequences of what they were asking for is that we would miss out on so much talent if every hire at the principal level or wherever had to go through the board. Um, this is just awful, awful practice. Uh, and I saw other candidates respond to this, like this demand of writing a letter or calling into the board meeting with like, yeah, like I just wrote this letter. And one of the other candidates for a different district seat compared this style of policy with like the Trump administration. And I'm like, your fear mongering BS is the problem. And like, now I know I am fully not supporting that person's race. They are, in my opinion, that is a clear illustration of somebody who is not qualified to govern a billion dollar school district because they don't, they are fully succumbing to the demands of a community that hasn't been communicated with well enough to understand what's going on. And so now I'll push it back on the district's fault. The district left too much room for the union and other uninformed folks to take up a uh, space filling in gaps that the district left. If the district had left no room for misinterpretation around like why it's important for the superintendent to have that and why it is super common practice in the best running school districts. Like if they had done that, there would have been no room for this outside push of people who have no idea about education systems to be telling us what effective policy is. Um, and for me, that's hugely concerning. And so one, I wanna push the district to communicate better so that there's no gaps that are filled by uninformed people. But I also want people who are just like rushing to make these demands of board members to like, do you know why you're making this demand? Like, are you just making it because person A and B told you to? Or did you do research? Did you ask people that disagree what their perspective is? And nine, I think 10 out of 10 times, these folks don't like, it's this bubble of just perpetuating each other's ideas. Sometimes that's good, but I think even when it's good, it's bad because you're not bringing in a diverse perspective and that's where sustainability becomes a problem. I, I feel, I, I'd feel remiss if I didn't give that like very recent tangible example of how very well-intentioned people that don't know, like, it's like, I mean, it's the whole fake news thing, right? Like we've seen this for the last four years, right? Like people see- And it's one on both thing. sides. Yeah, oh, like, for 100%. I mean, most of my issues have been coming from the left, like my side. 
And I'm like, no, like you're making it so hard to be progressive because like that is not progressive. It's it's as progressive as you want to be. And like you stopped for some reason, like be the whole way. Right. Um, so yeah, it's uh, for me, like as a practitioner, as a candidate, it's, it's infuriating. It's frustrating. It's like, no, why are we, this is why there's a problem. And I wish you could just see it from my perspective, but the people who don't, don't care to comprehend my perspective or the system perspective. Um, they're coming at it from a place of pure emotion and like emotion does not create sustainable change. It might create change temporarily. Um, and then you get this ping pong of like super conservative, super liberal, super conservative, super liberal. And it's like, all right, well, welcome to the end of our um, democratic Republic experiment. I like to start wrapping the show asking if there's anything you want to plug that we maybe didn't talk about. Obviously I'll be sure to plug your website, your social media stuff. Um, anything we talked about today, but I like to like give that little window of space. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, I appreciate it. Um, I think the, the only hugely important thing to me, um, that we didn't discuss, uh, is the like very important need of prioritizing early childhood education, pre-K. Uh, this is unfortunately not something that I feel like I've had the overt opportunity to bring up enough on the campaign trail um, because unfortunately, like it, it wasn't asked in questions. And I realized way too late in the campaign that um, it's something that I have professional background in. One of the, the projects that I managed when I was a, a district administrator um, was managing the implementation of a really innovative preschool initiative where we created um, two new pre-K options in the district uh, led by two high quality community organizations um, to create full day, like eight plus hours a day and full calendar year, like not school year, like 257 days of uh, public free pre-K for four-year-olds. Um, and what that looks like is that these four-year-olds complete pre-K on Friday and they start kindergarten on Monday. And like, this was only available to our families at the, um, uh, the lowest level of family income in the district, because um, it's super expensive. You can't afford to give it to everybody. Um, and it is the most clear initiative that I've led with a very clear focus on systemic change for equity's sake. Um, there has been no, projects that I've worked on before or since that has had a tangible shift in student outcomes. Every teacher that I met with after that first year at the, K at the kindergarten level said the social skills of those kids far surpassed every other kid in the class. And it, it didn't even come, like that was the more important thing than the academics, that those kids came in knowing what sharing was and how to do it well. They came in knowing like, how to ask questions, how to like interact, how to be uh, a critically thinking student, however critically thinking you can be as a six-year-old um, or a yeah, six year, six, uh, five, six-year-old. And so uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with um, a couple of the leaders of the United Way here in Austin 
um, as well as uh, Libby Doggett, who's Lloyd Doggett's uh, wife. And she's also a very big um, proponent of early childhood education. She's a big player in the community around like talking about that. And so when I had the opportunity to talk to her, like I didn't even ask for any type of support on the campaign. I was just like, hey, win or lose, like I want to work with you on expanding early childhood in a, like innovative options for early childhood ed, ed here in Austin. Um, and I don't know that AISD is, you know, gonna shape up quickly enough to really think about and prioritize that. So I'm talking to community organizations, like, can we figure out a way to do this? It should happen with the school district. I would love for it to. If I'm elected, it will. Um, at least I will die trying. Uh, and if it doesn't, I'm going to, on the outside, like work to build this idea of um, full day, full calendar year seats for our families with the most need, um, because it's been a critical shift in how you can approach early childhood ed. That was one of my first, in, that was my first internship was early childhood education. So I could talk about that for days on end as well. Well, I'll tell you when I, uh, after this election, like, invite me back anytime you want, because I, <laughs> I feel like there's hours and hours of more things we could talk about. Yeah. Um, we could talk about uh, the best bagels here in Austin. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> uh-oh, no, let's not start this now. I don't even want to know. Don't even tell me. Don't uh, even tell me. I'm going we'll to text you. I'm going to text you about it. That's a text combo for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, I, uh, I would love to continue the conversation. And um, like one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I've been prioritizing trying to get on podcasts in different places, not for campaign purposes anymore. Like I slip it in when I can. Yeah. Um, but I've realized that like, I am still after three months of campaigning, I am still bringing a different conversation to the table. And I'm not Absolutely. saying that to elevate me. I'm saying it in judgment of everybody else. Like, and I know that sounds terrible, but like, start to like take these ideas from me. Like I, I haven't trademarked any of this stuff. Like, and thankfully a couple of the other candidates have reached out to me behind the scenes and they're like, and I including at least one of my like direct opponents, mm -hmm. like, Hey Mike, regardless. And like this person has said, regardless of the outcomes, like I want to talk to you more about like this idea of open enrollment and student-based budgeting. I'm like, good. But like say that publicly, don't behind the scenes tell me that you're interested in that. Like, you're not going to lose votes by saying that you're interested in these ideas. They're not my ideas. Right. Like, you know, the, these are things that exist in, in the, the space. Um, but I, I do wish that by this point in the campaign, more people would have kind of just adopted some of this language, like moved away from the BS of being anti-charter and focused more about what can we do yeah. to repair our faults rather than high. Cause what I see is like, when you highlight the faults of others, it's because you're ashamed of yourself. And I don't mean them as people. I mean, they're ashamed of what we as a district are doing to kids. And so we deflect from that by highlighting how everybody else is hurting kids. At the end of each show, I like to end on a high note by asking my guest, what is the best advice you were ever given? Or what is a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Uh, so the response that I give is, is, is both. Um, and I don't know if you can call this advice um, more so than like, uh, I don't know, let me just tell you what I want to say. <laughs> and uh, so this was said to me by a one of my former bosses uh, when I was a district administrator. Um, 
and I'll, I'll give him a shout out, uh, uh, Seth Racine. Um, he was my boss in Lawrence Public Schools in Massachusetts. He was one of them. I feel like I had three or four bosses there. And uh, it's the best team I ever worked on. Um, one of the best jobs and roles that I've ever been a part of. And he said something to me uh, during my interview with him for that job. And it was when I knew I hadn't been given the offer yet. And I was like, oh, I think I just got the offer um, uh, unofficially. Uh, he was like the fourth person in like a two week long interview process. We met up at a grocery store uh, that had a coffee shop and we had coffee and we talked. He's like, I think that they decided to hire me at that point. He was just the final vet. And so he said to me, okay, Mike, when you come on board, uh, what's going to happen is, you know, we're going to spend like long days with the team, like locked in a room, like debating, arguing, talking about things. We're going to disagree. Um, we're going to be like, like all heartfelt about what we're bringing to the table. Um, but we will stay in that room until uh, we come to some type of agreeable consensus, um, which to me, one, I was like, okay, well, if I get this offer, which I think I did, I'm taking the job because I, I, I just valued that acknowledgement of like, he pretty much told me like, Mike, you're 24 years old. You've never been a district administrator before. You're coming into a really big job and your voice is as equal, it's equally as important as ours is. Um, and they, they met that ideal throughout my entire employment with them. Um, and so the, like the advice of it, that it wasn't given in advice, but the advice is surround yourself with people you disagree with, like purposefully. Um, and I give that advice to anybody. Like too many people are, myself included, because of comfort, just stay in our bubbles. Social media allows it. The world just makes it easier to stay in your bubble and, and not ever have to disagree. And I'm a big uh, Team of Rivals fan, which is like uh, the idea that Abraham Lincoln brought, which he put he put people who might have had something to do with his death, like on his cabinet and as his vice president, like he wanted to be surrounded by his rivals because he knew it would create, excuse me, it would create any change that came from that administration would be effective and sustainable um, because they would work through hard times. And so, yeah, I know that that was a really long answer to a, uh, what is probably often a, a simple question, but no. um, it was probably one of the most, like I, I talk about it all the time and this was seven years ago and it was one of the most profound things that was told to me when I've hired people, I bring that to the table. Um, and so the advice is surround yourself with people you disagree with. Uh, well, thank you so much. I'll be sure to link everything in the show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Brie. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Tea with Brie. Send me an email at theteawithbrie at gmail.com and visit the website, theteawithbreepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or where you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Mama Duke for our theme music. And I'll talk to y'all next week. Bye. Bye.